0: From The Nation Magazine, this is Start Making Sense Political Talk Without the Boring Parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the Republican tax bill in the House with George Zornick. And we have a special feature legendary New York restaurateur Danny Meyer will talk about the trouble with tipping. But first, our report from Russia. Almost all the news about Russia that we get is about their interference in our 2016 election one year ago this week, but some other significant things are happening there. One of them is the unveiling of a monument to Gulag victims katrina vanden was there of course she's editor and publisher of the nation she's written about russia for decades she's co-author with stephen cohen of the book voices of glasnost interviews with gorbachev's reformers and she writes about russia and other topics in her weekly column at the washington post and in the nation she joins us now from the magazine's offices in new york city katrina welcome back to the podcast
1: thank you john I was there in Moscow. It was Monday, October 30th, which is the Day of Remembrance of Soviet Victims, a, a day that Yeltsin established. And what struck me and you'll appreciate this as a historian is many much of the commentary in the Western press such as there is about the building of the monument, you know, focused on the day, focused on criticism of Putin because of ongoing authoritarianism, repression in Russia. But this monument took nearly 6 decades to build. Wow. At the, tw- at the 22nd Party Congress in November 1961, then Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, as part of an anti-Stalinism, de-Stalinization campaign, called for a memorial to the victims of the Gulag to be built. But it took decades. It took decades, though Gorbachev was in many ways, you know, on the continuum, calling for de-Stalinization. In so many ways, Gorbachev's uh, Glasnost policies, democratization, Perestroika were about de-Stalinization, that ongoing struggle. But it took the work of groups. Some of your listeners may have heard of Memorial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's named for "Let's build a memorial." It was created in 1988. A group uh, which you know came together in the Perestroika years. It required the participation of a newspaper called Novaya Gazeta. Uh, several of its journalists have been killed over these last years investigating corruption, like Anna Politkovskaya. And it required grassroots activists around the country and a young uh, director of the Gulag Museum, a state museum in Moscow. And in 2009, uh, Novaya editor Dmitry Muratov and former Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev went to see Dmitry Medvedev, then president. And he, in the interview, said, let the memorial be built. But it's now under Putin. And it is, you know, there is a surreal... To be in a crowd of about 200 people. It was a small gathering on Andrei Sakharov Street in the center of Moscow. Wow. It was 5 p.m. as it started. Putin is notorious for being late. (laughs) Started late. He stood there on a raised dais, very small dais, with the patriarch. One story I think so much of our media doesn't capture is the rising influence, power of the church, the Russian Orthodox Church, and with a man who's a member of the Fund Pomyatny, the Fund for Memory, a man named. Uh, Lukin, and each spoke for a few minutes. The memorial is quite powerful. It's abstract, which is unusual for uh, Russia, which is filled with literal monuments, often of Lenin. But it's of zeks; those are the political prisoners. It's a kind of pewter sheath that fills the background of this street. So it was very powerful. And I think what's important to remember, and I'll stop here, is that what you saw as we stood in that. Drizzling ice rain is the open historical struggle that has raged since 1961 between uh, neo Stalinists, who are resurgent today, and anti Stalinists, who are not repressed but who have been overtaken by a kind of Stalinist renaissance. And certainly, this regime, the Putin regime, has, you know, in many ways. Been more supportive of the Stalin era as a way, I think, of refor- reinforcing Putin's own authoritarian policies. But he's also taken any Stalinist positions at time. Uh, he authorized an expanded investigation of Stalin era crimes when he came to power. He led a state, I think it was a state funeral for Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of the Gulag Archipelago. And in 2007, Putin attended this highly publicized commemoration of victims at a notorious KGB and KVD killing fields outside of Moscow. And there is a state Gulag Museum, which is supported by the state. And by the way, this monument, funded by the state, I think it's some $6 million, but there's also crowdsourcing funding to get citizens, only Russian citizens, to support it. But it was a, it was powerful to see. I know there was criticism, John. But I'll tell you what interested me is the criticism was really from dissidents, Soviet era dissidents who live outside of Russia, like Vladimir Bukovsky, who lives in Cambridge, or Pavel Litvinov, the grandson of the former foreign minister Maxim Litvinov. Inside Russia, people, for example, with Memorial, who've really put their lives on the line to work for this, or at Novaya Gazeta, felt you know this is a step. You know how it is, John, you've studied this country's history. I mean, freedom doesn't come in one fell swoop. It's a struggle. And I think what's important is that people inside Russia struggle for their own change, for their right to protest, right to dissent for their own movements. It's a very difficult, troubled time, but there are a lot of stories we don't read because of the, you know, the the focus here on demonization. Demonization, I would argue that's gone beyond Putin into Russia. So you don't I don't think many people know we covered this at the nation in municipal elections in Moscow a month ago about 280 candidates independent alternative candidates won. So there there's 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 interest there are interesting developments and there, the landscape is far more complex than one would understand from here but perhaps that's the uh situation with coverage of many countries at this time in our country's history because there's a little bit of a kind of provincial feel as we struggle with our own challenges with Trump and Trumpism. Well, I do want to
0: get your perspective on the big Russia story for Americans, which, of course, is the investigation into Russian interference with our 2016 election one year ago this week and the Trump campaign's collusion. One news story, last week the General Counsel of Facebook testified before a Senate committee that 126 million Americans may have been exposed to Russia-generated content at Facebook alone. 126 million Americans is almost as many as voted in the whole election. Of course, American Intelligence Agency said months ago they had found that Russia hacked the DNC emails. I know you have a more skeptical view of all of this than many others. What, What do you think about Robert Mueller's investigations?
1: I think it's very important to continue. That's the bottom line. I mean, I think if you know, there. I was in Moscow emailing with a few American friends. One of them deeply worried that you know Trump might fire Mueller. That reeked of Soviet era politics to me. So the investigations should continue. At the moment, and you mentioned the Facebook. I, you know, those numbers have jumped around. John, at first there were a hundred. You know, there was a hundred thousand dollars. Of Facebook buy, and then the next thing you knew was at 126 million. What does Russian, you said, you know, Russian generated mean? What right. is the link to the Kremlin? That's often a leap that's taken very quickly. But I do think what we're witnessing, and it's too early to tell because the investigations should continue, must continue, is the kind of collusion of the 1%. I mean, you're seeing, maybe Mueller will drain the swamp. I mean, he's, you know, taking on the political consultant industrial complex, the money, la- money laundering, money lobbying, uh, dirty money, financial trafficking of Manafort. The charges against Manafort, my understanding, have little to do with the campaign. The George Papadopoulos, the indictment is more serious. We don't know where that will head. He may have won a wire. But I do think you're, you're witnessing, you know, failed real estate attempts, the tawdry, oligarchical collusion between our oligarchs russian oligarchs and I think that is uh something that needs to be exposed I think these paradise papers are fascinating as part of this whole challenge the tax evasion the loopholes but it's unclear to me if we're going to get to a uh, collusion between the Trump campaign and the Russians in order to throw the election to Trump uh and I do worry that in the context of the ongoing investigation there's a lot of you know chest beating and there's a lot of getting on high horses i was struck john last week ron Wyden, a good liberal senator from oregon in the context of the social media hearings you alluded to he said i'm i'm reading what he said with the current fascist leadership of russia enthusiastically undermining our democracy america must defend the values that made us great and aggressively confront this espionage and the enemies that sponsor it. I find that chilling. I think it's important to understand the role of social media, perhaps with the Russian connections or even more tightly tied to government operatives in the Kremlin. But that kind of language, uh, you know, words have meaning. Uh, They lead to a framework where the collateral damage of uh, a decent Working U.S. Russian relationship is almost impossible. And I understand why so many want to cripple Trump. We want to make sure he can't do the damage he's done so much already to our democracy, to our rights, to our civilizing advances. Yet, I worry that it's corroded in the antipathy to Trump that liberals, progressives are corroding or undermining the very values and principles that set us apart. So if we ask how important
0: was Russian interference in getting Trump elected, I think we can all agree it certainly wasn't the most important thing. I'd put Hillary's failure to win working-class votes as the biggest problem. You wrote for the your Washington Post column today about a, a an autopsy on the Democratic Party published by some Democratic and progressive activists uh, reassessing the 2016 election. Uh, let's talk about the, the Democrats and, and on the first anniversary of Trump's victory and what we need to learn about the campaign that's not about the Russians.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's very important. John, and I think part of what's happened with the fixation on the Trump-Russia connection is it's allowed too many Democrats and progressives to avoid confronting the economic and political system that put Trump in in power. The autopsy report is an important report. People should check it out. It's called Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis. 33-page report. In fact, it's the subject of our cover story by Bill Greider this week. It's a harsh indictment of the party and its attempts to kind of please, simultaneously please its billionaire backers and working class voters, it's critical, I think, for an honest appraisal of failure to one turnout a young, diverse vote base was to Hillary's defeat, as well as a failure to have a bold economic message that would speak to the white working class. I say white because the working class is brown, black and white, but those three states which really in the end defeated Hillary Clinton demand a sharp laser-like focus on the white working class. I'd say the biggest challenge ahead, John, is how we expand our base, get people to come out, young people, African Americans, Latinos, that rising American electorate, as well as erode Trump's support as he betrays so many of his voters in those key swing states and do so with a kind of smart, cross-racial, cross-class coalition building politics. And I think that's something we need to learn um, as progressives and as Democrats.
0: One last thing. Uh, Trump is in South Korea this week. I know your biggest concern has been reducing the danger of nuclear war, nuclear war, with uh, North Korea, nuclear war with Russia. A week or two ago, you wrote in your Washington Post column about steps that should be taken immediately. Let's briefly talk about those, starting with that legislation introduced by Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts and Representative Ted Lieu from Los Angeles, my representative in Congress. They propose requiring a congressional declaration of war if the president is going to authorize a nuclear first strike. That certainly seems crucial, but it's not the only thing that you're recommending to us.
1: Yeah, no, I think, um, thank you, John. I mean, I do think, as former Defense Secretary William Perry has said, you know, the danger of some sort of a nuclear catastrophe is greater than it was during the Cold War. People are sort of blissfully unaware. But in addition to what Marky and Lou proposed, the U.S. and Russia could de alert the nearly 2,000 nuclear weapons currently kept on hair trigger alert. And there should be more realistic thinking about what is essentially a discredited program missile defense, which Trump thinks, like Reagan did, will work. Um, but ultimately, as you talk about South Korea, North Korea, as the best living ex-president, Jimmy Carter, has written, there's no substitute for our leaders coming to the table, beginning a dialogue, freezing these military programs. And I think, as I wrote, you could say that you can't trump. Trump is just, you know, how how can you with Trump? But you come to negotiations with the governments you have, not the ones you wish you had. Yes. And there was resistance and skepticism about the talks between Gorbachev and Reagan. So I think opposition to Trump should not be opposition to common sense. And common sense, in my view, means trying to de-escalate a very, very frightening, not just in the Korean Peninsula, but across the board, uh, nuclear uh, scenario on this good planet.
0: Katrina Vanden Heuvel, just back from Russia. She's editor and publisher of The Nation. Katrina, thanks so much for talking with us today.
1: Thank you, John.
0: Now it's time to talk about taxes. The Republican leadership in Congress wants to pass a tax bill before Thanksgiving. That's in just a couple of weeks. The heart and soul of the bill in the House right now is a cut in the corporate tax rate from 35% to 20%. If it passes, it'll be the first and best legislative victory for Donald Trump since he won the election. Republicans will be able to run in 2018 and in 2020 everywhere, claiming they succeeded at cutting taxes for the middle class. For the latest on the tax bill, we turn to George Zornick. He's Washington editor of The Nation, and we reached him today in our nation's capital. George, welcome back. Hi,
2: John. Thanks for having me back.
0: Well, of course, there's a lot in this bill. Is it correct to say that the heart and soul of it is the corporate tax cut? Uh,
2: that's certainly a big part of it. I, I think if you're looking at the big pieces, you say it's it's the corporate rate reduction, as you mentioned, from 35 down to 20 it is the elimination of the estate tax which matters to a very 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 small percentage less than one percent of american families but it matters a lot to them um and of course they are are very prolific in in funding the republican party and and then you have you know as a third major kind of area it it goes hand in hand with the corporate tax cut um, but it's it's the way that pass-through income is treated and that that sounds unfamiliar to most people, I would imagine, but basically it just says, you know, if you have an LLC or an S Corp or, or anything, um, any vehicle like that, um, right now you pay taxes basically based on or close to what the individual rights would be. So if you make a ton of money, you're, you're paying probably around 39% on the business income that goes through that, that pass-through entity, that LLC or what have you. And what this bill would do is cap that at 25%. So in a sense, that also is, is a corporate tax cut. It's, it's a pretty big one. And it would, the concern is that it would allow not only corporations, but a lot of wealthy individuals to use it to, to lower their taxes even lower than what the GOP is claiming that they're going after. So for example, if you were to uh, start John LLC and and just ask your various employers to write a check to that, you could cap your income at tax rate at, at 25%.
0: So is this the news you can use segment of the nation podcast here?
2: <laughs> well, you know, it would really only work if you're very wealthy. Okay. So uh, 86, 86% of pass-through corporations right now pay 25% or less. So you say, well, what's the point of capping it? Well, it's for that 14% that are above that. I'm, I'm guessing you're probably not in that. I don't know <laughs> I don't many people who are. It's for the very wealthy individuals.
0: Now, House Speaker Paul Ryan, Republican of Wisconsin, told reporters on Thursday that, quote, the entire purpose of this tax bill is to cut middle class taxes, close quote, the entire purpose. I wonder if you can shed any light on this.
2: Well, one, it's it's plainly the the real purpose is a massive upward transfer of wealth that will mainly benefit the, the corporations and wealthy individuals who will Who do bankroll the GOP? I mean, they, and you can look at any study that's out there from um, nonpartisan groups, Tax Policy Center, I expect we'll see the CBO. um, They all are are unanimous in the fact that this is mainly benefit the very wealthy. And Republicans have have been frankly honest about this in in the past few days. There was um, a quote this week from Chris Collins, who, a Republican in the House from Western New York, he was the first guy to back Trump. And he said, quite frankly, that his donors have told him, if, if you don't pass this, don't bother calling me again. Wow. So he, he, he kind of uh, gave up the game there that it's not, you know, he's not hearing from the farmers in, in New York's 23rd district or whatever it is. Hey, I, I really need you to pass this bill. He, he's hearing from the people who bankroll his campaigns and the campaigns of other Republicans that, that this needs to get done.
0: Yeah, I brought in some of the statistics that have been online Uh, recently. You mentioned the Nonpartisan Tax Policy Center. They uh, found that the richest 1% of Americans would reap 48% of the benefits if the current House bill passes. And the New York Times reported this week... Quote, nearly half of all middle class families would pay more in taxes in 2026 than they would under current rules if the proposed House bill became law. There's a couple of reasons uh, for that. Uh, some which have p- quite a bit of political of significance in the upcoming 2018 elections, and that has to do with the elimination of the exemption for state and local taxes, which would hit the blue states, especially California, especially hard. And we record our show in California, and in California we have seven Republican House incumbents running in districts that Hillary carried last year, their opponents would love to be able to say, Daryl, Issa voted to raise your taxes. What's going to happen with this provision, do you think?
2: Yeah, that's very interesting. And it's funny that you, you mentioned Issa because he has come out and said uh, just this week that he is unsure that he can support this bill. I mean, what it's really about is that the, the Republicans want these massive corporate and individual tax cuts, and they need to find a way to at least motion to paying for it. I mean, they they haven't actually made this um, deficit neutral, but they have scraped around for revenue so that it's not just a, a nuclear bomb to the, to the deficit when you eliminate all this revenue from wealthy earners and, and corporations. So they've hit on what are going to be unpopular fixes like state and local tax deduction and things like... You know they've eliminated abduction deduction for for interest on student loans they've eliminated write-offs for people who have big medical bills so you know it's interesting you mentioned that paul Reincourt, where he says oh this is all about cutting taxes for the middle class well sure technically i mean we'll put aside the fact that it's it's much benefits the wealthy to a much greater extent you know put aside the fact that that middle class rates per se will go down but it doesn't mean that that middle class people will end up paying less in taxes, specifically because some of these breaks that they use, the state and local taxes and a student loan and, and medical expense and mortgage, you know, things like that, that's actually going to make their taxes go up at the end of the day. And, and there was a study that came out from the Joint Committee on Taxation that's really caused heartburn for Republicans in Washington this week because it said – that 20% of Americans will actually pay higher taxes by by 2027 under this plan. Um, and, and it's not all wealthy people. In fact, it's it's concentrated pretty heavily in the middle class.
0: Yeah, I want to underline what you said about eliminating the deduction for medical expenses. Nearly 9 million taxpayers I've read collectively deducted about $84 billion in medical expenses from their taxes in 2015. The House bill would eliminate that deduction. There's a lot of voters in that group. I imagine the Republicans, some Republicans anyway, are worried about the political implications of that.
2: You know, you would think so, but it didn't stop them from, from really trying hard to push through um, an Obamacare repeal bill that would that would make it um, very directly difficult for a lot of their constituents to get affordable health care. So I guess in that sense, they're kind of marching along, and, and that is something that I think Democrats are a little bit worried about because, you know, with the Obamacare debate, which Democrats were ultimately successful in, There was a very clear and immediate cost to constituents where you would say you know if this bill passes this many million people will lose their health care and if if you meet these conditions you may be one of them Um, this tax bill is 500 pages long it's incredibly complex and it's clear that the strategy republicans have is to just come out and say these outlandish lies like oh no it it doesn't really benefit the wealthy oh the, the middle class will get a $4,000 a year tax cut. That's something that Sarah Huckabee Sanders had been saying, although she seems to have abandoned it. And all it meant was this, this kind of junk study that said if you cut the corporate tax rate, that it'll amount to a $4,000 a year savings for middle-class families, which is just ridiculous on its face. So, they're, But they're going to make a lot of very um, appealing and, and wrong claims about this tax bill and hope that by the time that everybody figures it out, we're years down the road and they can kind of escape punishment for it.
0: So we've been talking about the House. Then there's the Senate. If this bill gets out of the House, several Republican senators have said they would have a problem voting for any tax bill that significantly increased the deficit. The House bill that we are now looking at is projected to add $1.5 trillion to the deficit uh, over the next 10 years, what do you think is going to happen uh when the house bill gets to the senate
2: yeah well let me just first say i i don't think we should assume that that's going to happen yet if okay if, if mirrors health care you know the, i mean right now they say they want to pass it before thanksgiving there's something like as of this recording nine working days in congress before oh. thanksgiving i i do not see that happening but assuming at some point something comes out of the house yeah you're exactly right there are senators who said um, they will oppose it if it adds to the deficit, and some have been surprising. I mean, I think at first people were looking to the same figures who played a big role in the healthcare debate, so the Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, but um, what really kind of shook Republicans up this week was when James Langford of Oklahoma, um, kind of a no-name guy who who got to the Senate after coming out of the Tea Party wave in the House back in, in 2010, um, actually came out and said, yeah, I can't support this if, if it does increase the deficit. And he's a rare case of um, a Tea Partier who just maybe isn't completely full of baloney, which has really been the funniest thing to watch in the House, darkly humorous anyway. Of all these, these hardcore conservatives, a lot of them who came out of the Tea Party wave, who, of course, were you know, banging their fists on the table about the, the debt and the deficit and Obama's bankrupting the country... And many of them have turned around in the House and said, "Yeah, I'm not concerned about the deficit when it comes to tax cuts." Mark Meadows, the head of the the far right caucus in the House, said that just this week. But, Lankford actually seems, at least now, unless he he you know backtracks, to be actually consistent with the position he he ran on in 2010 and just saying, you know, I I can't back this. And he's a hard right guy. I mean, a senator from Oklahoma. He he is about as conservative as they come. But if he holds the line on this, it's going to make it very difficult um, for them to pass it, given that there's already resistance from a lot of other senators, Bob Corker being one. Um, you know, they have they have no margin. So the question then will just become, can they pick off Democrats in red states who who will back this up and kind of bail them out and, and cancel out some of these Republican no votes? Well, let's
0: talk about the Democrats for a minute. This bill was put together without any input from Democrats uh, when Reagan rewrote the tax code a generation ago. Democrats were part of the process. How unified are Democrats in opposing this bill?
2: You know, uh, in, in one sense, they are, are extremely unified. And, and But if you look deeper, and, and I have a story coming out this week at The Nation about this, they actually have some pretty significant splits on it. So on, on the GOP tax bill as written, as the whole package, you're going to see close to, if not total, Democratic opposition and the budget votes in the House. Obviously, they haven't put the tax bill on the floor yet, but in the House, when they put the budget resolutions, which were seen as a stand in that paved the way for the tax bill, you had 100 percent Democrat no votes. You know, there's a couple people in the Senate like Heidi Heitkamp and, and Joe Manchin that the White House is going after. Ultimately, I'm skeptical that that they will vote yes on the Republican plan. But what I think a lot of progressives in Congress are worried about, and this is I've been speaking with them and this is what the story will be about, they have concerns that a lot of the party is actually okay with a corporate tax cut. And this is not something that they whisper in secret in the halls of Congress. I mean, they have come out and said this. Chuck Schumer said it uh, just within the past month that he found it strange that Trump didn't come to them with a corporate tax rate reduction and some things that would be nice for Democrats because he thought it would pass and that the party would get behind it, and he's probably right. I mean, even going back to the late stages of the Obama administration, when he put out his budget, the last couple of them included a proposal for a corporate tax rate cut, and his was, of course, structured a little differently. He made it deficit neutral by saying, we'll, we'll lower the rate, but we will eliminate the loopholes, which will balance out the revenue. But philosophically, Democrats or a lot of Democrats are not necessarily opposed to cutting corporate taxes because it's again, it's about the donors and corporations fund, you know, big chunks of the Democratic Party as well.
0: George Zornick, read him at thenation.com. George, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you, John. we have a special feature. The legendary New York restaurateur Danny Meyer talks about the food business. His restaurant, the Union Square Cafe, was a New York City landmark for decades. Now his Shake Shacks are all over the place. He spoke at the end of October at a dinner organized by the nation in honor of the publication of the magazine's food issue. The event was held at his restaurant at the Whitney Museum. The restaurant is called Untitled. One of the things Danny Meyer talked about was why he's against tipping.
3: I I think my uh, thinking on tipping has evolved dramatically in one way and not at all in another way. I wrote an article for the Union Square Cafe newsletter, um, which was the only way I could communicate back in the old days. And the article that I wrote for that was anti-tipping but for a very different reason than I finally arrived at two years ago two and a half years ago back then it would just crush me when I would see a waiter in tears because they had been stiffed on a tip Mm -hmm. and they thought they had given great service or they had been stiffed on a tip and the food was slow but they had nothing to do with the food being slow that was you know an honest problem in the kitchen Or maybe the guests were from London and they don't have a tipping culture. Or maybe someone was inebriated and they forgot. You you just never knew. But it it just always felt horribly. And and the reason is that the tip was really all they were making because the uh, adjusted minimum wage for tipped employees back then uh, was I believe two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. I think what what was much more moving a couple of years ago was a very different thing. I noticed two and a half years ago that the the income disparity between cooks and tipped employees had grown dramatically, almost thirty times. And the reason is that it's against the law for tips to be shared with Anyone who does not spend 80% of their time in a guest-facing role. You could get brought to court if you were to share tips with the cooks in the kitchen. And by the way, why, why is that disparity grown? Because a tip is a multiplier of a menu price. And menu prices have gone in one direction. In my career, menu prices have not only gone up dramatically and, and more quickly because of the cost of, of everything, whether it's your rent, whether it's the commodities, whether it's the underlying labor, whether it's the linen, whether it's insurance, health insurance, etc., and And not only has the menu price gone up, but so too has the tip percentage itself. When I opened Union Square Cafe, 15%. So that went up to 17.5% when people said, I got it, let's just double the tax. And then It went up to 20% Mm -hmm. because that was even easier math Mm -hmm. after a few glasses of wine. So that's all good, but what's not good is that the the cooks in the kitchen can't afford to live in New York. They've they've been earning about 30% more today per hour than they were earning in 1985.
0: Then Danny Meyer was asked about the history and politics of tipping.
3: The the politics behind tipping goes all the way back to the abolition of slavery because the two industries in the United States that successfully petitioned the U.S. government to create dispensation where you would not have to pay your staff or your employees were the restaurant industry for the service staff and the Pullman train car industry for the porters because of this little-known European bourgeois custom of Tipping to show that you had some extra money, Mm. and so what is two dollars and thirteen cents today in this country? In approximately, I should know the answer, but let's say something like forty of the fifty states are still around two dollars and thirteen cents an hour, all the way up from zero at the abolition of slavery. More and more states, the they're they're saying why why should there be why should restaurants not be responsible for paying everybody. Why should you pay for that? Why should you decide what a waiter is worth? And meanwhile, the the thing that I said in terms of the hoax is that the economic basis of dining out in this country is completely flawed. We have done a fantastic job over 25 years of convincing everyone in this room to pay a little bit more money for properly raised fruits and vegetables, maybe organic, but at least safe and, and seasonally grown and brought in by your favorite farmer and preserving land as a result. We've also convinced all of us over the last 10 years to pay a little bit more for cage-free eggs or chickens or, you know, animals that have been raised with proper husbandry. And it just strikes me as being completely odd that that the economics of the restaurant experience, and this is harder to break than ever because of the internet where everyone knows what chicken should cost in a restaurant, (laughs) and there's 26,000 restaurants in New York. So the downward pressure on your ability to price is crazy. And the last thing we're willing to give on is people. The last thing we're willing to pay more money for is people. We just decided that the right thing to do for us is to stop blaming a system that we do not have to, we don't have to sustain that if we don't want to, to stop sustaining a system that, in addition to everything I just said, and and including the disparity between what people can make, is that it's a dead-end drug. I know people, um, including my wife, who I met when she was an actress waiting on tables at a seafood restaurant in New York City in 1984, You make good enough money in New York. I'm not talking about Denny's and Applebee's where $2.13 in a little pinch will get you a good tip. And that's a sad story, but that's true. But you make good enough money in New York as a tipped employee that you end up not pursuing the very reason you came to New York in the first place. And you make good enough money as a tipped employee that you can actually not afford to then become a manager and pursue a career in hospitality if that's what you wanted to do. So we said screw it. Let's and I'm going to tell you right now, it's one of the hardest things I think we've ever undertaken as a restaurant empire. Oh, excuse me, collection. <laughs> it's hard it's hard to get the math right on this, mm-hmm. but we want to get to a point where the price you see on the menu is everything. Mm-hmm. There's no extra line to give a gratuity. You don't have to wonder You know, what you should be leaving because you got a bottle of wine worth this much or this much. And I'm really, really proud of of the consumers who have said, let's give this a shot.
0: That's New York restaurateur Danny Meyer at The Nation Dinner for the magazine's food issue. Read it online at thenation.com. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks with comedian Judah Friedlander, who offers a unique explanation of why Team USA Failed to qualify for the twenty eighteen World Cup. That's this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash Edge of Sports. Take, 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 take Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with additional production help from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhoevel is editor and publisher of The Nation. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to start making sense at iTunes, Pocketcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Weiner. Thanks for listening.